I won a Rhodes Scholarship and went to Oxford University, but ended up dropping out because I got very depressed there. And depressed, I think, because I had become so averse to failure and so hell-bent on success. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I'm your host, Ozan Varol. Today's guest on the show is Rachel Simmons. Rachel is the author of Enough As She Is, How to Help Girls Move Beyond Impossible Standards of Success to Live Healthy, Happy, and Fulfilling Lives, as well as the New York Times bestsellers, Odd Girl Out and The Curse of the Good Girl. As an educator, Rachel teaches girls and women skills to build their resilience, amplify their voices, and own their courage so that they and their relationships live with integrity and health. Rachel was the host of the PBS television special, Girl's Life, and her writing has appeared in the Washington Post, Atlantic Slate, and New York Times. She is also a regular contributor to Good Morning America and appears often in the national media. This was such a great interview. As I mentioned to Rachel at the beginning of the conversation, I've been deeply immersed in her work over the past few months, and it was great to speak with her. We cover a wide variety of topics. We talk about why Rachel dropped out of a prestigious Rhodes Scholarship program to pursue her research how women and girls struggle with an acute fear of failure, concrete strategies that parents can use to build resilience in their children, what educators like myself can do in the classroom to help students overcome their fear of failure, what you can do to stop overthinking after a failure, which is often a very common and debilitating response, and how you can exercise your failure muscles to build up your own resilience, and much, much more. Before I play the interview, if you'd like to keep in touch with me, your host, you can sign up for The Weekly Contrarian, which is a weekly newsletter that goes out to nearly 11,000 subscribers every Thursday morning and shares with them an article that I wrote that week, along with a book and other article recommendations, recommendations for tools and, and other gems, and really anything that helps challenge conventional wisdom and uh, helps you look at the world a little differently. You can sign up for that in one of two ways. You can go to weeklycontrarian.com and just drop in your email address, or you can text my first name, Ozan. O-Z-A-N to 345345. And if you sign up now, you'll also get my free ebook, The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles for Innovating Your Thinking. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rachel Simmons as much as I did. Thank you, as always, for listening. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you on. I'm currently writing a book, and one of the chapters is on failure. So I've been deeply immersed in your work, and it's so nice to be able to speak with you. So you have been researching young women and the issues facing them in modern society for the past two decades. What led you down that road? Well, a lot of different things. Some of it was maybe failure when I was a a girl and then some setbacks I experienced when I was a young adult. So the first category would be the kinds of experiences I had as a girl that I could never really make sense of. And a lot of those were about peer aggression and getting targeted by other girls. But some of those experiences were also me targeting another girl on my own. I think that there was never a lot of conversation about what was happening, but we all knew that it hurt. It hurt other people. You know, it hurt us. And so I think the experiences of feeling left out really 
pushed me to kind of pursue the question of how is girls aggression sometimes different than boys? And that was really where the question for my first book, Odd Girl Out, emerged from. But then the second category of failure, like as a young adult, I won a Rhodes Scholarship and went to Oxford University, but ended up dropping out because I got very depressed there. And depressed, I think, because I had become so averse to failure and so hell-bent on success that I just was like determined to be a Rhodes Scholar, but not really thinking about whether or not I wanted to go to Oxford University to study in England. And so all of this came to a head, and I ended up dropping out of the Rhodes Scholarship, as it were. And that is how I ended up writing my first book, was that I had just kind of fallen off the ledge and hit, for me, what was rock bottom. The first time in my life I had ever really screwed up, and I had to start over. And that was really where I turned to that first question of what happened to me when I was a girl, and how do I make more sense of that? So when you say aggression or targeting, I assume you're referring to bullying? I am. And that was that my first book was called Odd Girl Out, The Hidden Culture of Aggression in Girls. And how does aggression in girls differ from the aggression in boys? It depends who you ask. If you ask a group of fifth grade girls, they will tell you just how radically different girls and boys are. The research is a little bit more subtle. So let me give you the fifth grade girl answer, which is that girls tend to be more indirect They tend to be less assertive with their feelings and more prone to going behind each other's backs, using tools like gossip and rumors, the silent treatment, increasingly, of course, using social media as a tool to harm. And what most of these behaviors have in common is kind of a lack of being direct. Fifth grade girls will also go on to tell you that boys, by contrast, are much more direct with their aggression, much more likely to have it out with each other and then move on. And they'll also be quick to tell you that girls hold grudges. So just like boys can shake it off and move on, girls never forget. The research is a little bit more, I would say, subtle in the sense that increasingly we're finding that by middle school, boys and girls actually tend to engage in almost equal amounts of indirect and direct aggression. So some of that difference in how people would answer that question has to do with what boys will say to an adult versus what they'll tell a researcher. But some of it has to do with the fact that more and more girls feel permission to be directly aggressive in a way that they even didn't 20 years ago. And how did your own experience of, I guess, being on the both sides of this growing up affect you as a, a grown up? So both being... And correct me if I'm wrong. So you were the victim of a female bullying, but you, you said you participated in that as well? Yes. So it, it's definitely affected me in profound ways. I think having been the target of, of other girls, it made me extra vigilant about wanting to fit in with girls and wanting to fit in with the right people and being afraid of being cast out. So kind of a combination of a yearning to be accepted, but also sort of a willingness and some level to do whatever I needed to do to be accepted. And so I think as I got older, I became more skillful at blending into groups and at becoming more likable. And then I think having hurt someone and, and kind of carried that memory, two things happened. I mean, one, as I got older, I, I kind of blocked it out which is something that a lot of girls and women have told me they do that, you know, or that has happened to them. In other words, someone's a woman is mean to them, but then they pretend like it didn't happen. And that is not unrelated to the expectation that women be likable, because if you're supposed to be likable, and if I, you know, broke that rule and was mean, then the best thing I can do is pretend it actually didn't happen. And so I spent a lot of time kind of in denial about what I had done and then eventually came to face it. And it's really stuck with me in a much different way now um, in middle age. 
I want to circle back to something you you mentioned earlier with respect to the Rose Scholarship. So for those who are listening, Rose Scholarship, and for those who don't know, it's a really prestigious postgraduate award for students to study at the University of, of, of Oxford. So it must have taken a lot for you to leave the the program. Can you tell us a little bit more about that decision and how others around you reacted to it? Yeah, it was a really epic difficult moment. I think up until that moment, I had like a lot of overachieving privileged young people believed that life was a kind of test that I could ace if only I worked hard enough. So I just was really certain that like if I did everything I was supposed to do, everything would go well. And I really didn't entertain or brook the possibility that there might be unexpected situations or or factors that would take me off my path. And so when I came to see that I was sliding into a depression, which I had never experienced before, and when I came upon further reflection to understand that that depression was happening because I actually didn't want to be in England, nor did I particularly want to be a Rhodes Scholar, that I had gone so far afield from what I genuinely cared about, I, it, was a, it was a really dark and difficult moment. When you become a Rhodes Scholar, people are well aware of how prestigious it is. They're well aware of the very famous Rhodes Scholars that are out in the world. And so I think it comes with a sense of a lot of expectation and promise. And so I think people looked at me like I was throwing away a huge opportunity, a ticket of a sort. But the truth is, if I'm really honest, I don't want to like, I don't want to idealize myself. Like I was so upset there. I was so unhappy that I just didn't know that I could make it. I was afraid that I would just fall apart even worse than I'd had. And I, on some level, just decided that I was going to have to go back to square one and figure out another way. But all of this was really hard. I come from a family of mostly immigrants who you know, if you know any, if your listeners know anything about immigrant families, and, and, and you may be one yourself, I'm not sure, but, you know, you don't drop out of road scholarships, you don't throw away the opportunities that other people have fought to get you. So that added a whole other layer. Um, now that I work on a college campus at Smith College, that experience has given me a lot to talk with my students about, because many of them now are bearing some of the same challenges. I can imagine, and I am an immigrant myself, my I was born and raised in um, Istanbul, Turkey, and lived lived there for 17 years, and left my family behind to come to the United States for college uh, by myself. And actually, one of the reasons why I started this podcast is that stigma that's attached to failure in most cultures. But the the stigma was particularly acute where I grew up. You know, if you fail in the United States in business, that's fine. It happens to. <laughs> To most entrepreneurs, but if you fail in business in Turkey, there's just such a huge stigma attached to it. And, and as you said, Rachel, you know, when you do get a scholarship as prestigious as as the Rose Scholarship, you're not supposed to throw it out. And so people have a very hard time coping with failure. One of the other differences that you discuss in your book between boys and girls and the book, you've written many books. The book I'm referring to is the one that just came out in paperback, which is Enough As She Is, your latest book. And I'm going to read a quote from that book. And this is about the fear of failure. So you write, for many girls today, the drive to achieve is fueled by brutal self-criticism and an acute fear of failure. Although young women have never been more successful, outpacing boys in GPAs and college enrollment, they've also never struggled more. On the surface, girls may seem exceptional, but in reality, they're anxious and overwhelmed, feeling that no matter how hard they try, 
they'll never be smart enough, successful enough, pretty enough, thin enough, popular enough, or sexy enough. So how do girls respond to failure differently than boys? It's hard to know how much of it comes from cultural socialization or enculturation, I should say, and how much of it may just be ingrained at this point. Um, But there are a couple points I want to make. One is that what researchers have found is that when girls and when women make mistakes, they are more likely, so that doesn't mean that all of them are likely to do this, but they're more likely than men or boys to see their failure as a sign that their ability is flawed. So what does that look like? It means if I don't do well on a math test, I decide this is because I'm terrible at math. Like I'm just not good at math and therefore X, Y, and Z. Now, boys and men are somewhat more likely than women and girls to say, well, the reason why I got a poor math grade is because I didn't, you know, I didn't sleep enough or the teacher's a jerk and and not very good. And in other words, they're more likely to make an interpretation that isn't about ability per se, but that is more about the circumstances that are a little bit more flexible and that are not about the self. And so if you think about it, if you tend to interpret a problem that you have as some like pervasive sign of your lack of ability, well, that's not very motivating, right? It doesn't make you feel like, wow, I could really turn this around and like improve my performance. That's a kind of lead weight on you. And so when you interpret failure in that way, it really kind of cuts off at the knees your ability to be resilient and to identify a different strategy to help you accomplish your goal. That's one thing. The second thing is that what we see girls dealing with is this kind of paradox, which is on the one hand, they've got more opportunity than they've ever had before. And and I'm not at all, you know, questioning or or denigrating that. But All that opportunity comes with so much expectation and pressure, and it hasn't really led to us saying, hey, girls, you know what? Like, don't worry about all the old school stuff that we expected you to do. Like, we haven't been like, hey, don't worry about that bikini body. Like, you don't have to do that anymore. We haven't said to them, like, you know, you don't have to have a million friends and be popular above all. We're saying, girls, you can go study whatever you want and go into any field you want, but you also have to do all these old school things we expected you to do. And so that is kind of a second layer that might not necessarily be complicating how girls respond to failure, but it certainly is compounding the pressure they feel to succeed. And it's creating enormous stress and fatigue for our girls. So it's almost this collision between old societal entrenched expectations and then new opportunities on the other hand. Right. And it's like kind of hard to explain that to people sometimes because, of course, you have rightly people who say, come on, dude, like girls have all the opportunity now. Like, this is awesome. Why are you complaining? And it's like, well, actually, it's really hard for girls to feel like I have to be the first to do X, Y and Z or I have to be the best at this thing and I have to be the best at everything. So it's really introduced another complication or another layer of threats to girls' confidence and resilience and potential. And that's really where my work as an educator now lies. And I want to add to you also that this is adult women who are experiencing the same challenges. This isn't just girls. Aside from this conflict between old expectations and and, and new opportunities, what do you think is driving the, the different responses between men and boys on the one hand and women and girls on the other hand toward failure? So as you said, men and boys tend to blame their failure on external circumstances, whereas women and girls tend to, again, generally speaking, tend to look more to more internal, you know, I'm I'm not good enough at X, Y, or Z, 
What do you think is driving those two responses? I think it was Carol Dweck, the social psychologist who's based at Stanford, who in some of her earliest research, before she began to study mindset, the concept which made her famous, and her book by the same name has been a a huge bestseller in, in many domains, including business and education. But I think it was Professor Dweck who found that it had to do with the kind of feedback that girls and boys were getting. So... For example, if you think about how girls tend to comport themselves in a classroom, kind of an up-close look at this, because I now have an elementary school-aged daughter. And so my daughter will say to me, man, the boys are so silly all, all the time in class. Like, the boys are constantly being put in the peace corner, because I, I live in kind of a hippy-dippy area. So <laughs> in my, where I grew up, it was called the timeout chair, but now it's the peace corner. Anyway, the point is, she's like, God, the boys are just like out of control. And, you know, I'll, of course, try to, you know, pepper her with questions that are sort of like, well, what are the girls doing? Well, the girls are just kind of hanging out waiting for this to stop. So in other words, there's something about the way that the kind of feedback that teachers give kids that then affects how they deal with failure. And so, for example, if as a girl, you're so well behaved that the only time a teacher ever tells you you're doing anything wrong is because you've like completed the math problem wrong, there can be put into place a kind of sense or an assumption that this probably happened because I'm not good at math. Whereas boys who are constantly being told, pipe down, stop throwing that spitball, go sit in the peace corner, you know, tie your shoes, sit on your hands, stop talking to your neighbor, stop calling out, raise your hand. Boys begin to understand that a range of factors may be to blame for their failures. And that was her hypothesis. And I do think that there's a lot of truth to that. Because if you if so, if you pull back from what I just described, and you think about it in terms of socialization, you just think about how girls are raised from a very young age to be compliant to please others, to think about being liked before they think about what they care or want to say most, that is going to, I think, affect the way they interpret when they've fallen short because so much of that is being filtered through the lens of, but this is how I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to do everything right. And so how do you approach that with your own daughter? And, And I'm asking this because there are parents in the audience, of course, who I'm sure are concerned about the same issue in, in their own children in terms of making sure that they are resilient, that they have the ability to to cope with the fear of failure. What strategies do you use to cope with this issue with your own daughter? And what would you recommend that other parents do? I definitely think the most important thing parents can do is just live by example. And, you know, I think more parenting experts need to talk about that just that the modeling that we do is the most important classroom for our kids. And so to that end, there are different things that you can do as a parent. One of them is to speak openly with your child as much as possible about the mistakes that you yourself have made. And to do that in a couple of, for a couple of reasons or in a couple of ways. One, you want them to understand that mistake making is a normal thing. So you don't necessarily need to share epic problems or huge dramatic, you know, setbacks, but just to show them through discussion that failure is an everyday part of life by doing it in a calm way. Moreover, you show them that they also don't have to like knock you over. And if you can talk about your failures in a way that is balanced, that kind of evidences 
accountability, right? You're not acting like it doesn't bother you. You can say how you felt about it, but then also it doesn't say things like, God, I'm so stupid. I can't believe I did that. If you can manage to say, I made a mistake, I felt really embarrassed and here's what I'm going to do tomorrow to try to make it better. That's the best kind of classroom your kid can have. If on the other hand, you don't talk ever about your mistakes with your child, the things that we keep in silence tend to be the things that people begin to fear talking about, or they feel ashamed of them. And so some of us as parents, we may think like, well, if I don't talk about it, they won't know. Well, sometimes the things we don't talk about are the things that our kids are experiencing, but then feeling like there's something wrong with them for experiencing because no one else is talking about it in this house. So there are many ways to model, but that would be one of them. I love that. And it reminded me of another example that Adam Grant, who's been on the show before, gave something that he does in his own classroom, which dovetails very nicely with the strategy that you just described. And for those who are listening who don't know Adam Grant's work, he's an organizational psychologist at Wharton and the New York Times bestselling author of, of several different books. But he mentioned how he opens his very first class with a failure resume of sorts. So he'll go through and tell the class about all of the embarrassing failures that he's experienced in his own life, precisely for the reason that you mentioned, Rachel, which is to create some psychological safety for the students, because the students won't feel as comfortable challenging this authority figure behind the lectern if they view that figure as, you know, this quasi-divine person who can do no wrong. But if you can share your failures and, uh, and even better, as you said, ask them or tell them, here's how I responded to them, that has the effect of, of normalizing failure and talking about it in a way that that's not talked about in society. I think this is also something managers can do with their employees. And I think so many of us believe well, if I tell my kid that I screwed up or if I say to my direct report that I that I made a mistake, that that's going to like give them permission to do the same. It's actually, I think, the opposite. What it gives them permission to do is come and find you before big mistakes happen. In fact, so many things that go wrong often ha- go wrong because we didn't seek support when we could have, because we were afraid, we were ashamed, we knew something was wrong, but we didn't want to tell anyone. So when you open that pathway, I think you actually, it's a preventative mechanism. I'm always amazed no matter how many years I've been doing this, there's a, educators know this or people who make speeches or whatever, any kind of public speaker knows this, whether you're a teacher or whatever, there's a specific kind of silence that falls over a room where the people are like really listening. It's like almost like it goes from, you may know what I'm talking about, like it goes from quiet to really quiet. Sure, yeah. Right? Like you can hear a pin drop quiet. Absolutely. Yeah. So like that kind of silence is what I get with my students when I talk about my failures. And it, I, I'm moved by it because it's like, I guess for some reason, they just don't have a lot of adults in their lives who are willing to say it. And so to me, when you hear that silence, it's a, it's a signal that these, these kids, that all of us need more role models who are willing to be role models, not by being perfect, but by being works in progress. And I think one of the reasons why you do get that absolute pin drop silence when you do share your failures is because, as you said, it is so rare, especially in the in this day and age of social media, where we all put forward curated, positive portrayals of our deeply flawed, deeply imperfect lives. It probably is a huge breath of fresh air for your students to hear from someone as accomplished as you that you too have <laughs> suffered these failures in your life, that it hasn't been all smooth sailing. So tell us about this initiative that you mentioned that you're spearheading at Smith College called Failing Well. And if I remember correctly, other institutions have since started similar programs. 
as well. Why do colleges need such programs? And, and I'd love to hear more about specifically what failing well looks like on the ground as well. Well, let's start with why colleges need it. I mean, I think it's a couple of reasons. One is that we really understand that resilience of flexibility, adaptability, that these are not only critical leadership traits, which I think our colleges, many colleges want to instill in their students, but they're also like basic functioning behaviors, like or traits, I should say. And so like, we're seeing a generation of undergraduates coming in to school who look fantastic on paper. I think you read that in the excerpt that I wrote, like they, they have great GPAs, but a lot of them don't have what some people call soft skills, which I think is, by the way, not a great term, because I think soft is so demeaning of what we're talking about here. These are really critical character traits that help you take what you know on paper and actually execute it and work with other people to bring things to life and respond to the idiosyncrasies of everyday life. And so we have this generation of students coming in who've got really overdeveloped kind of on paper muscle, but very underdeveloped muscles around these traits of resilience and adaptability, flexibility. On the other hand, these kids are really struggling to function in college. It's not just about what happens after college, but they're also struggling to function in college. So I think what we're realizing, and when I say we, I mean not just us at Smith College, but the other schools that have begun to launch similar initiatives, is that these kids are coming in without the skills and we've got to fill in the gap. And if we don't, we're not just going to be unable to prepare students to excel after they leave school. In some ways, they're not going to make it through school. Feeling well. So if I'm an educator, it took me a long time to figure out what it is I do for a living because I dropped out of grad school. As I told you before we started recording, I withdrew from law school and I wrote some books. I'm like, who am I? So I finally figured out I'm, I'm an educator and and so I'm, I'm good at teaching and I'm good at teaching skills. And so what failing well is, I sort of I took failure and I said, okay, what are the skills or the ingredients that a young adult needs to have in order to manage failure with grace? Like if I were to break down a healthy response to failure into discrete ingredients or skills, what would that look like? And that's what failing well is. It's the opportunity for students to have workshops, to attend workshops that are skill building workshops that address those ingredients. So what are they? Well, one might be how to quit overthinking. We know that rumination, overthinking, perseverating, whatever you want to call it, we know that that is a maladaptive response to failure. We know that it elevates anxiety and depression and all kinds of bad things that we don't want our students doing. And so teaching students strategies to manage overthinking, which P.S. is my most well-attended workshop. Like, <laughs> I, can, I can hold the overthinking workshop. And I, I, I'm in New England, which, you know, we're recording this in the winter. And like, you know, it's pretty dark out right now. Literally can be like the rainiest, coldest, crappiest day ever in New England and 50 kids will show up to this work <laughs> standing room only. I'm like, dudes, you guys need help. So overthinking is an issue. Just so we can give the audience yeah. a flavor of the overthinking workshop. Can you think of one particular strategy that you teach? Yeah. I mean, some of them are really simplistic, but speaking from experience, they work. So if you're an overthinker, two things you can do. One is you can picture a stop sign in your head when you start to slide into overthinking. Like actually just picture a stop sign and say to yourself, stop, because it is a habitual thing that you kind of need to like jog yourself out of. This does work, by the way, at least for me and for others. The other thing you can do, and this does sound a little silly, but again, bear with me, you can schedule your overthinking. So you can be like, all right, I'm going to think about this conflict that I'm having tonight from seven to seven 30. And then at seven 30, I'm like going downstairs and I'm going to like, or I'm going to go to the library and study with my friends. But after seven 30, I'm out. 
And so you can kind of contain it. So those are some of the things that we practice. But on a deeper level, we do things like mindfulness and meditation and other ways to kind of distract because we because what research shows is that distraction in particular is one of the more effective antidotes to overthinking. And one of the other things that struck me uh, about the program, the students entering your program receive what you call a certificate of failure. What is that exactly? And what's its purpose? So the certificate of failure is, I don't even remember how we came up with it. It's on my wall right now. So every summer I lead a college first year student orientation here at Smith. And I have a student co-facilitate with me, usually a student who's been through it the year before. And I think one of the students thought it up, or maybe we brainstormed it together. I can't honestly can't remember. This woman, Molly, comes to mind from many years ago. It's basically we were like, how do we get students to feel like, okay, you got yourself into an elite school. You've done your part to put forth this incredible resume and test scores, and you've worked yourself into the ground. Now, here's your like diploma that entitles you to go fail. Now that you've made it, please screw up. And so the certificate of failure says, like, go ahead and like write a bad email or like hook up with the wrong person or just like say something you regret. (laughs) And like, and you'll still be a really worthy person. And it looks like a diploma. And it's signed by me. One of my students put it in a broken frame, like on purpose. That's awesome. Um, They put it on their walls. And like, you know, again, these are not things that I particularly took seriously at the time. I'll be totally honest. I was like, haha, wouldn't it be funny? And then, you know, they, they gravitate towards it. It's like, okay, I guess I'll, I mean, which is in some ways how we teach, right? We have to, teaching is always about prototyping. You know, you're always, and, and teaching is so much about failure. And I think that's probably what has also steered me in this direction is that for every successful thing I've done as an educator, I've had so many flops because you're always testing and piloting and and seeing what sticks. If you're an educator on a campus uh, like my campus, which does not have a failing law program like Smith does, what can educators do to build resilience and help their students overcome this fear of failure? So personally speaking, when I teach first years, I give a you know big speech at the beginning of class about the value of failure. And I tell them, look, you've, you've come here because you've avoided failure for most of your lives. And, you know, the, the, the truth is you're going to fail and failure is good because that's how you learn and grow. And I try to hammer that point home. But in the end, I don't know that it resonates with the students because, you know, as you know, in law school, you take this one final exam at the end of the semester and your employment opportunities or your opportunities to get prestigious clerkships might depend on how well you perform on those final exams. And so when students are myopically focused on performing well on the final, I don't know how well that that lecture I give on failure resonates with the students. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what educators can do in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to point out, honestly, that it probably doesn't hold much water for them, partly because you're just saying something to them. And it's like a drop in the bucket to just continue the water metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) I just mixed metaphors really um, aggressively in that sentence. But like, it's just it's so meaningless to them. I I don't mean to, to, to trivialize what you're saying. But like, it's so well intentioned. And yet it is so minuscule in comparison to the other messages which they've gotten, which sure. run counter to what you said. So what I would say is that rather than I mean, you can you can talk to them about it. it's totally fine. I mean, you, you shouldn't stop doing that. But on top of that, I would do this, I would think about like, what's the one resilience skill that you would like to see them develop? And here's a great example of one that I think would be particularly useful in law school. And that is support seeking. 
So one thing that I have learned in watching high achieving people, it's not just girls or young women, is that many of them have a really dysfunctional relationship to asking for help. And there's a continuum. Some of them ask for too much help and they always come to your office hours and they're like, just tell me what I need to do to like get an A in this class and I'll do it. And their questions are more about how do I achieve success and avoid failure than how can I actually learn? And then on the other end of the continuum are the people who never ask for help until they can't get out of bed because they're like having a panic attack. I think that the ability to kind of skillfully tell somebody, I don't have all the answers and I'm going to need some additional information or I'm going to need a resource that I don't currently have in order to get where I need to go. I think that that's a huge part of being resilient. And I think a lot of our students, because they've been educated to sort of fight for themselves, to succeed at any cost, to see sometimes in some communities their peers as threats, a lot of them lack that ability. So what I would say to you is see if you can talk about ways to seek support, why it matters, why it matters in studying the law, which I think it does. I mean, if you just think about the way judges, justices work together, thinking through opinions and sharing their ideas and working stuff out, like I think there's a lot of application, right, to law. I think if you give them a chance and even reward them if you're able to for practicing, that could be very lasting in terms of an impact. Oh, I, I love that. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, no lawyer works in isolation, but the way that law schools operate is is in one sense very solitary because each student is just working on their own. There's very little opportunity for group work. And, and if they haven't developed the skill to seek support, then they're not going to unless there is some affirmative strategies offered by the, the educators. And that's such an important life skill. And I'm not going to call it a soft skill because I completely agree with you that that thing denigrates the importance of some of the skills that we that we talked about. We're coming to the end of our time here, Rachel, but I want to give you the opportunity to share any parting thoughts with the audience, any anecdotes, really anything that should have been said, but was not. Oh, man, that's so much pressure. I feel like I'm going to I feel like I'm going to fail at the end of this interview. But <laughs> Are you going meta on me, bro? Um, let me think. I don't know. I guess I will say that I think it's really important to always keep challenging yourself and always keep going out of your comfort zone. That really the only way to fail well is to keep exposing yourself to it. A lot of it just comes down to flexing that muscle. You don't wake up one day just knowing how to deal with a setback. It's it's something that you have to develop a relationship to. And, and like I said, just keep flexing that muscle. Otherwise it atrophies. Um, so I think, you know, I try really hard to do things that make me nervous, not necessarily scared because I don't think being scared is effective as a way to take risks, but I do that and it's made a big difference. And I really strongly encourage everyone out there in the smallest of ways to just keep challenging themselves outside their comfort zone. And uh, if people want to check out your work and get your latest book, again, the paperback has just been released. Where can they find you online and where can they get a copy of the book? You can find me online at rachelsimmons.com. I also want to, you can get the book on Amazon or anywhere books are sold, but I also want to share that I've launched some online education and in particular a parenting uh, course called Enough As We Are, which will be going through another cycle shortly. And you can find out about that on my website as well. Awesome. And we'll put all of that in the show notes so you can easily access those links. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for a great conversation. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, 
Please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.